Great. Uh, we're going to do something unusual this morning. I'm going to try and do the whole book of Ecclesiastes in a way. Thank you, David, for reading uh, those two passages. Um, and uh, try and give you a, a flavor, a shape for the whole thing. If you weren't here last night, you'll need to ask somebody uh, about what last night was about. Um, th- there's a Catholic theologian, G.K. Chesterton. G.K. Chesterton said, the only two things that can satisfy the soul in all the world are a story and a person, and even a story must be about a person. It's nice, isn't it? The only two things that can satisfy the soul are a story and a person, and even the story must be about the person. So you can ask people who were here last night what the story is uh, about a person uh, and, and how that satisfies the soul. Here, here's what we're going to do today by thinking about perspective. Okay, it's a standard thing, isn't it? People say there's, you pick up the glass, you're holding it in your hand, there's only two ways to look at it. The glass is either half empty or the glass is half full. And we think those are the only two options. But actually, there's a third option. And with the, with the topic of death in the Bible, people often think, Christian people think, there are only two ways of thinking about death in the Bible. Okay, so the standard two ways of thinking about death are that death is a curse. That, that's clear, isn't it, from Genesis chapter 3. That's the meaning of death. That after what humankind has done, God imposes death as a judicial punishment for sin. We're going to think a little bit about that through the weekend. That's, that's one view of death, that you stand at a graveside and you weep. De- death is evil. Death is awful. Death is not the way the world was meant to be. It is something God has put into the world as punishment for sin. But the second perspective on death that Christian people know is that death is a blessing, isn't it? We often say that with somebody who, who loves the Lord Jesus, who has suffered terribly, and now they've gone and they've left to be with him. Paul says that, doesn't he, in Philippians? To, to depart and to be with Christ is better than being here with you. Uh, to actually be with Christ is the best thing. So the, there's these two, two views of death in the Bible, curse and blessing, punishment and presence of Christ. But it, they are not the only ways of thinking about death. There is actually a surprising third angle as possible. Uh, here's what someone called George Carlin said. It's a third angle on something that you didn't think was possible. Some people see a glass half empty, others see it half full. I see a glass twice as big as it needs to be. There is sometimes a surprising way of looking at the same thing from a whole new angle. And the book of Ecclesiastes does that. The book of Ecclesiastes takes death and looks at it from a whole different angle. It's got nothing to do with glasses and half full or half empty or anything or twice as big. It's just uh, the, the words on the screen are just to show you that there is a different way of looking at something. And I want you to leave this weekend clear in your head with a different way of thinking about death. Okay. Now, to get there, we're going to do a little bit of work before we, we narrow in. The, the talk after this is on time, which is going to be connected to death. Then we're going to think about death itself this evening. And then tomorrow uh, tomorrow morning, I'm going to try and land the plane for you for the weekend, uh, thinking about life. Okay, so to think about perspective, uh, I, want, I want us to take a big step back from the book and just to consider, uh, consider something. C.S. Lewis has a, a really famous sermon 
that he preached um, at the beginning of the Second World War, and the, the sermon was called Learning in Wartime. Okay? And what C.S. Lewis was doing in, in, in that essay was wrestling with the connection between the things of this world and the things of the next world. He, here's a really famous prayer. Uh, those of you who are Anglicans, you might have said this in your beautiful Book of Common Prayer. This is the collect from the fourth Sunday after Trinity. Now listen to this amazing prayer. God, the protector of all that trust in thee, without whom nothing is strong, nothing is holy. Okay, now here's the petition to God, the, the, the request. Increase and multiply upon us thy mercy, that thou being our ruler and guide... Here's what we want God to do for us, that we may so pass through things temporal that we finally lose not the things eternal. Grant this, Heavenly Father, for Jesus Christ's sake, our Lord. Amen. That, 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 that These two lines here, that we may pass through things temporal, that we finally lose not the things eternal. That's the book of Ecclesiastes. How do you move through fleeting things so that at the end of time you do not lose eternal things? C.S. Lewis wrote this essay, Learning in Wartime, okay, uh, because there was the pressure point at the start of the Second World War, how can these students at Oxford and Cambridge, students who've gone off to university, how can they pursue academic pleasures, what, what C.S. Lewis called placid occupations, while Europe was poised on the precipice of such a great conflict? How, how on earth can you sit in a library when bombs are falling and trenches are being dug. And what C.S. Lewis said is, he said, to answer that question, you need to widen the lens. You need to have a big perspective, okay? Change your perspective from the immediate danger of war to the more remote but the greatest danger of all, which is God's coming judgment. Okay, so here's what C.S. Lewis said. He said, if learning in wartime may, may be compared to Nero fiddling while Rome burned, okay, that's what Nero did as Rome was burning, apparently fiddled on his rooftop, doing something pleasurable while something so awful was happening, okay, if learning in wartime is comparable to that, then to a Christian, the true tragedy of Nero is not that he fiddled while the city was on fire, but that he fiddled on the brink of hell. In other words, he, he was doing something pleasurable while hell existed, while hell was real. The real question is, is, is this for us. How should we make sense of anything at all in our present bodily lives while the yawning chasm of eternity is waiting for us on the other side of them? Okay? It's a, the, the, the learning in wartime things, like Ukraine playing football the other night, beating Scotland, sadly, 3-1. How, how can a nation play football while its men and women are dying? How, how can you do something like that while something so awful is, is beckoning or is on the horizon or is actually happening? C.S. Lewis said, yes, of course that's a problem, but you all live every day of your lives with eternal judgment as a reality on the other side of the grave. If you widen the lens, it changes everything. Okay, it's, not that, it's not that some of those big questions disappear. Instead, they come into to sharper focus. So if you're going to think with me through Ecclesiastes about the meaning of life, about 
if we're all going to die one day, why does anything matter at all? What, what, why should we love and be loved if one day we will die? How can we put one step in front of another when the grief that we're living with is so great that it feels like suffocating us? You can only do any of those things if you have a truly big picture, if you've taken a step back and, and seen, seen something that is true and beautiful because the perspective is so big. And I want to suggest to you this weekend that C.S. Lewis, that this, this phrase, this idea of widening the lens, is just following the skillful preacher in Ecclesiastes. That's what the teacher in Ecclesiastes does. He, he helps us pass through temporal things with wisdom and with wit and with joy and with happiness because the teacher has seen eternal things, because he's looked long and hard at eternity. That's what the teacher is able to do. So what I want to do is I want to give you four keys to Ecclesiastes, and then I want to give you four Ps to Ecclesiastes, okay? So four Ks, four Ps, um, an eight-point sermon disguised as two four-point halves, okay? So can you see all of that? Yeah? Okay. So the four keys, okay, we're going to start big the whole book, and we're going to narrow in all the way down to one word, okay? So I want to show you four things. A unified book. I want to show you a stark question, a key phrase, and then a vital word. So we're going from the book to a question, to a phrase, to a word. So as you get more and more tired, we're getting easier and easier down to uh, just one word. And then when you think it's all done, there's still the four Ps to come, um, okay? So... Here's where I want you just to engage a little, put your thinking caps on a little bit. I want you to have Ecclesiastes open in front of you, okay? The, the first thing that you need to do if you're going to try and read a book like this is to understand the way it works as a whole book, to get your, get your head around the shape of the whole book. And something really unusual happens in what David read for us. So if you, if you look at it, if you look at chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, I want you to notice that th that is in what you call the third person, the words of the preacher the son of David, king in Jerusalem, okay? He, third person is he said. This is what he did. But then look at verse 12 of chapter 1. What, what, what happens? It changes to the first person, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel. So you have 1 to 11. It's called the prologue, okay? The opening bit that is in the third person. Then it goes to autobiography in verse 12. And the autobiographical section of Ecclesiastes runs all the way through to the end of the book, just before the bit that David read. Okay, so if you flick forward to the end of the book, okay, it's actually running all in the first person until you get to verse 9. Then you have the third person appears again. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging everything with great care, okay? Prologue, and then here at the end, you have the epilogue. In between, autobiography, okay? Now, the reason that matters, okay, is because when you read the whole book together, Ecclesiastes says things that leave you thinking, should that really be in the Bible? Okay, that is so shocking, so strange, so bizarre, okay? And many commentators, even really good Christian commentators, say that these middle parts of the book, from chapter 1, verse 12, all the way to through to chapter 12, 
those middle parts of the book are so shocking that they are actually un unorthodox. Okay, it's, n it's not what we should believe. So there's a really excellent Old Testament scholar called Tremper Longman. Tremper Longman says, from chapter 1, verse 12 through to the end, there are stark observations about God, life, and death that are in explicit conflict with the wisdom of Israel. Okay, and then, then he says this, listen to this, so much so that the God you meet in Ecclesiastes from chapter 1, verse 12 through to chapter 12, verse 8, the God you meet is distant, occasionally indifferent, and sometimes cruel. Okay, you hear what he's saying? In other words, chapter 1, verse 12 through to 12, verse 8 is not Christian. Okay, but he says it's in your Bible. So how is it there? What, what, what sense can we make of it? Here's what he says. The unorthodox middle bit of the book is countered and corrected by the prologue and the epilogue. So somebody came along, picked up this devastatingly depressing literature and said, we want to put this in the Bible, but we can't put it in the Bible unless we fix it. And let's fix it by adding an introduction and a conclusion that gets everything right, that is orthodox, that, that, that saves it. That, Tremper Longman says, the normative teaching of the book is chapter 12, verses 9 to 14. Okay, and it's what he calls a frame narrator. He, the narrator has come along, framed the book with orthodox teaching to, to give it to you and me. Now, I hope there's alarm bells going off in your head. There should be when somebody handles parts of the Bible in that way. And yet, at the same time, let's not dismiss Tremper Longman's view too quickly, okay? Don't be, don't be too, I'm about to be really hard on him. Don't, don't be too hard on him right from the start. It's not automatically wrong to say that there are unorthodox views in the Bible. Think of Job's friends. Job's comforters spend chapters in the Bible of speaking untruth to him, don't they? Telling him, that you, you, you've, you've obviously sinned, Job. You've got something wrong, haven't you? Just come on, admit it. Tell us what it is. And there are chapters and chapters of unorthodox theology in an orthodox book, okay? But, okay, he, put, put your eyes in chapter 12. That, 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 put your eyes in chapter 12. Let me try and show you just very quickly why Tremper Longman's view cannot be right. Here, here's one, there's two things I want to show you. Here's the first thing. Look at, look at chapter 12, verse 9. Besides being wise... The preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The biggest problem Tremper Longman has, and he, he has to get around this by reinterpreting the epilogue. Uh, he gives it a different translation, actually. The biggest problem for Tremper Long Longman's argument, of course, is that the epilogue at the end isn't condemning what's there earlier on in the book, is it? It's actually saying he wrote words of delight and he wrote words of truth okay here's the other big flaw in Tremper Longman's um, Tremper Longman's view if you go back to chapter 2 verse uh, look at chapter 2 verse 22 okay <clears throat> here's this here, here's why Tremper Longman thinks what he thinks okay this middle order by autobiographical bit is depressing and unorthodox look at chapter 2 verse 22 what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils under the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. It doesn't sound very 
Christian does it, Tremper Longman says, look at chapter 4. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. They had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who are already dead, are more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both the dead or the living is the one who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. So you kind of, you see what Tremper Longman, see what he's getting? I mean, kind of, really? Is that what a, a Christian can say that? Sometimes you look at certain things, well, it's just better to never have been born at all. Tremper Longman says, no, that, that cannot be right. That's why we need this prologue and epilogue to, to fix it. But here's the biggest problem with Tremper Longman's argument. Tremper Longman realizes that even in this big autobiographical section, this whole middle bit, okay, there are many positive passages that appear right beside the darkest passages, right beside the bleakest passages. So uh, we looked at chapter 2, verse 22. Now look at verse 24 of chapter 22. Chapter 2, verse 24, there is nothing better for a person that, than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. So Tremper Longman has a problem immediately. The, the idea of the unorthodox middle has God saying that this is something from his hand. Look at, look at chapter 3, verse 12. I perceive that there is nothing better for mankind and to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever, nor can anything be taken from it. Uh, we're going we're to look at this passage on Sunday morning. Look at chapter 9, verse 7. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. Does the writer say, because that's all there is, God doesn't care less, you're going to die? No, he says, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let no oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Okay, now, lest you think you're in an academic classroom, here's the key Here's the key thing, okay? Tremper Longman looks at his problem he's got. This is an unorthodox middle part of the book, but hang on, there are these shafts of light in the darkness that come all the way through Ecclesiastes. And Tremper Longman scratches his head and he says, ah, I know what's going on here. Okay, yes, these are shafts of light, but he says, these things are only, and this is his, a quote from him, these things are only a limited type of joy. Okay, what, what, what are the joys that we've just read in those verses? Eating, drinking, working. Eating, drinking, working are limited types of joy because they are not spiritual goods, Tremper Longman says. Okay? What you, are, what you are looking at there, friends, when you read that in a commentary, what you're looking at there is a commentator who has not seen the greatest idolatry of the human race, okay? For somebody to say that the gifts that God has given, food, drink, work, relationship, are limited types of joy is idolatrous, okay? 
Go back to the very beginning, the Garden of Eden. What did God give Adam and Eve to do? Hey, do you remember those words at the start of Genesis where God said, be fruitful, multiply, eat from every tree in the garden, and I'm sorry that all those things are just limited. Once you've done all those things, you will progress to really spiritual, perfect life. Do you remember when he said that? No, he, he didn't, did he? What, what did God give Adam and Eve to do? Get married, have as many children as you can, as you want, eat, drink, and from this garden I've given you, there is only one tree you may not eat from, but the rest of it is yours. God looks at Adam, who he's created, and what does he say about Adam? It is not good for man to be alone. And for some bizarre reason, well, it's not bizarre, it's because of where we are at our point in history, Western people, we think that has got to do with loneliness. It's not good for man to be alone. Maybe Adam was like most men, blissfully happy being alone. Maybe, maybe he was, maybe he was happily in his element. We do not know how Adam felt about being alone. It's God who says it is not good for man to be alone. And why is it not good for man to be alone? Because God has given Adam a garden and he has told, God, told Adam to make the world like the garden. That's what Adam's task was, was to push the boundaries of Eden out to the edges of the earth. And if you're going to do that, you're going to need help. It's not good to do that on your own. And if there's two of you, well, you're going to get more help. If there's actually three of you or four of you or five of you, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And as you do it, eat, drink, work, build cities, conquer the earth, create culture, do it all. That was the creation mandate, wasn't it? It's what God gave Adam and Eve to do. And so, friends, I want you to leave this, leave this weekend thinking, here I am, I'm a Christian, I'm an accountant, I'm a doctor, I'm a nurse, I'm living in this part of Northern Ireland, or I'm living here. What does God want from me? God wants you to know that eating, drinking, working, and relating, whether you're married or single, if you're married, the application is a little bit easier in terms of relationship. But even if you're single, you are somebody's son, somebody's daughter. There is a relationship there, isn't there? And there may be your own family in the future ahead of you. Those things, eating, drinking, working, relating, are the best things God has given you to do. And I want to say to you, there is nothing more coming. That's it. That is the greatest thing about being human. Eating, drinking, working, relating. And learning how to do all of those things Christianly. Okay? God didn't make the world, put us in it to do all those things, and now you're a Christian. Leave all of that behind and be elevated into a kind of, a kind of spiritual sphere. At, at the end of time, what will happen the new heavens will come down to earth. What is the dominant picture of the new creation? Floating on a cloud, strumming a harp, eternal church service, all the kind of things that make children not want to be Christian. No, it's the opposite, isn't it? It's, it's 
the, 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 the spiritual comes down to the physical, and at the end, the physical and spiritual are reunited. The dominant picture of the new creation is a new creation. The main ways that the Old Testament describes the future is a messianic banquet. What's the first sign that Jesus does? Turning water into wine. It's an astonishing first way in which he reveals his glory. Uh, what one theologian has said that Jesus literally eats his way through the Gospels. Uh, Luke's Gospel, he's either always coming from a meal or on his way to a meal. And Revelation, what's the, what's the depiction of the end of time in Revelation? A wedding banquet. So it is an astonishingly sad thing for a commentator to say, ah, yes, I see these shafts of light, but it's only food. It's only drink. It's only, it's only relationships. Go, go enjoy your life with your wife. Ah, yes, limited type of joy. I'm going to try that uh, next time when we're trying to arrange a night out or something. So, ah. <laughs> it's only a limited ninth birthday, isn't it? Um, no, it's, it, it's, it, it's the exact opposite. If you're living for more, if you want more than that, good luck to you. There, there isn't anything more. And, and we do the opposite, don't we? we? We think all those things are just means to an end of achieving our, of, of what we're really here for. We're here to really conquer the world and have our name in lights or whatever it is. And Ecclesiastes is just saying, no, that, that, don't get beyond yourself. Be, do what Adam and Eve were meant to do and enjoy it and live your life enjoying it as much as you can. Okay, so there's, there's the first uh, thing to, to realize. Don't, don't, <clears throat> don't buy anybody who tells you this is a fragmented book or you need to put the orthodox uh, beside the unorthodox. No, we need the, the fact that Tremper Longman says these are limited types of joy says much more about his conception of joy than it does about Ecclesiastes. We have a modern Western conception of joy. The teacher has a wide angle lens that's allowing him to hold the, the darkness and the light side by side. I'm gonna suggest to you he's, he's got the C.S. Lewis wide angle lens, okay? So a unified book, what, what time does this session go on to? Well, put it, yeah, okay, so let, let's do it that way around. What time is coffee? All right, okay, great. Okay, great, just wave at me uh, when it's time to stop, but I know, rough idea, okay. Um, here's the second thing then, okay, so unifi you've got a unified book, okay, epilogue, prologue, main bit, all saying the same things, okay. A stark question, this is one of the other keys, four keys, here's the second key, and I want you to feel the starkness of this. Look at chapter one, verse three, uh, let's read from verse 1 again. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Okay, and the reason I've called this a stark question, this, this resurfaces, it comes up again and again throughout the book. What, what do you gain by your life here on earth? What do you gain by all your toil? And I've called it stark. Because as you read Ecclesiastes, you need to know that Ecclesiastes' answer to that question is not much at all. Okay? You, you are going to be here for what? Three score years and ten, God willing? Maybe longer? And I want you to go home this weekend knowing that what you're going to gain 
from all that work that God has given you to do is not very much at all. How do you feel about that? Sorry? Slightly depressed. Okay, so my, my job throughout the weekend is to take you from depressed to thankful. Okay, so let, you can tell me at the end, Angela, if, you, if we've cracked that. Okay, okay. You, you need to get inside this idea from Ecclesiastes that what you will have to gain at the end is not very much at all. Now, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, it's, it's, it's what we call, it's not case law. It doesn't mean that there aren't some people who gain a tremendous amount in life. Of course, of course there are. Some people, so we're talking about Alex Ferguson over breakfast this morning, some people get the statue, some people get uh, the stadium named after them, but think how minuscule that is in the grand scheme of the human race. And even to them, Ecclesiastes says, yes, but one day your heart will beat for the last time and you will stop and your body will decay in the ground. What have you actually gained from all your toil. At that moment when you've died, what have you gained? Okay, And the book of Ecclesiastes is saying, saying to us that human beings do not actually gain very much at all, if anything, from being here. And here's, Angela, why it's hopefully not depressing, because it changes the way that you do the things that you gain from. If you realize that the whole point of your work is not to build a legacy for yourself is not to build for your name in lights, that it's okay to be here for three score years and 10 and disappear from the earth and no one know you're there, no one know you ever lived. If you can begin to come to terms with that, I want to say to you friends, it will radically free you in how you do the things that you're doing day by day. To actually accept, a big part of Ecclesiastes is I want you to accept that you're a creature. That's what the teacher is saying. I want you to accept the limitations of being mortal, of being frail, of being finite, because most of what you're doing is trying to pretend you are not finite. One of the first ways to accept the limitations of who you are is to simply enjoy your lunch. One of the greatest things you can do in a day is enjoy the food that God has given to you. It's a gift. And it's the reversal of this word gain, okay? So the message of Ecclesiastes is, what does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Answer, not a lot. And that's okay because life is gift, not gain. Life is about receiving the good things that God has given and accepting them as good, loving them as good. Um, those of you who have children, David mentioned little girl at home, and if you've got, if you've got children, what, one of the greatest, one of the most amazing things in life as a parent is giving presents to your children, isn't it? The Christmas morning, it's what it's all about, isn't it? As you, you move into later life and Christmas is a bit of a hassle and a pain, to see the delight on children's faces at gifts is beautiful, isn't it? And Ecclesiastes has a way of saying that is what, we're going to look at it in chapter 9 and Sunday morning, that's what God is like when God gives you food, drink, sex, work, relationships, all these things to enjoy. God is thrilled that you get to enjoy them. And the flip side, of course, is the opposite, isn't it? When you give a child a present Christmas morning and by Boxing Day, they've chucked it in the bin or they're not bothered with it or... Uh, 
Boxing Day is a bit stark. It's about three months later or something. You, we, we're like that. We say to our kids, yeah, you remember you were really into skateboarding? I haven't seen that skateboard quite so much. And, you know, your kids are yeah, bothered. And I remember it cost me, you know. And, and you, you, you remember the cost. You remember what it meant to give. And to see somebody take a gift and not actually be that bothered with it, to just, oh, yeah, thanks, is it? That's what I deserve. Uh, on to then what's next what's the next thing we, we talk about people being entitled don't we it's an awful thing to see one of the most beautiful things in life is seeing grateful people people receiving things that you think this is nothing and yet they're so thrilled to get it and ecclesiastes is just trying to reset our gratitude ometers that the, the simple things that we took for granted this morning clothes to wear warm place to be in beautiful surrounding Ecclesiastes saying, if, if you didn't get out of bed and by breakfast time this morning, your heart wasn't bursting with wonder that I'm alive and that God has given me all of, the, given me all of this, you're, you're starting to live for gain, not gift. You're starting to think, yeah, this is all just a means to an end for me to go and do something. And Ecclesiastes is saying, just slow down, take, take a look around you and realize what you have that you, do, you did not deserve. Okay, so I want you to read it, read Ecclesiastes. Every time you come across that idea of gain, you're going to see that word a lot through the book. Answer it in your head, not much, not much at all. Okay, there's a unified book, there's a start question, there's a key phrase in Ecclesiastes. Here's where I want to try and change maybe some of your paradigms with Ecclesiastes. Look at the same verse again. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Under the sun is a key phrase in Ecclesiastes. You'll come across it again and again. These days, under the sun, life under the sun. Okay, And what, it, what, what happens here, I think this is a, a place where people go wrong, that we tend to see that phrase, under the sun, and we read it spatially. Okay, So we imagine that we split the universe, don't we, into heavens, earth, and hell below, this kind of three-storied three view that's not, not a biblical way of actually... Uh, literally describing the world we think under the sun is us and above the sun is god okay above the sun is uh, is, is life with god what what happens if you if you take that phrase under the sun to be a spatial term okay readers of ecclesiastes say that under the sun the world is broken the world is meaning meaningless the world is dark depressing but above the sun Life with God, life with the Lord Jesus is different, okay? Below the sun is us, above the sun is life with Christ. And so people read Ecclesiastes to say the message of Ecclesiastes is, is don't live under the sun, live above the sun. Okay, when you look at life without God, it's meaningless. When you look at life with God and with Christ, it has meaning and it has purpose, okay? Life without Jesus is awful. Life with Jesus is wonderful and perfect. If we live the way God intends from God's vantage point, then you will be spared the nihilism of the under-the-sun perspective. Okay? Now, I, I grew up with that view of Ecclesiastes. It's how I'd always thought of Ecclesiastes in some way. Ecclesiastes is mainly an evangelistic book uh, for university missions and so on, saying to people, don't live under the sun, come to Christ, live live above the sun. I think that badly misreads that phrase, under the sun, okay? It's a key phrase. 
rather than thinking spatially above and below, and we're, we're, it's understandable that we do it because it does say under the sun. We, we see the word under, the key word is sun. Ra rather than thinking spatially, we need to think chronologically, think about time. In the ancient world and in scripture, the sun marks time more than it marks space. Okay? So we, we do the three-storied world. The Bible does sun as a marker. There weren't clocks. You, you, you worked out where you were by the sun. So one commentator has said, that this phrase, under the sun, it refers to a now, today, rather than there, tomorrow. Okay? Under the sun points to these days right now. These days that you are living in, these are the days under the sun. Okay, but one day the sun will be no more. What, what happens in Revelation? There is no sun or no moon. There is no night and day. The, the Lord Jesus himself gives the light of the new creation. There is no need to measure time in the same way. That means that in Ecclesiastes, when the, when the teacher uses the phrase under the sun, he's not talking about life without God. He's just talking about life, that this is the way the world is. He, he's commenting on what temporal life is like, okay? So he, he, here's the payoff. It means that Christian and non-Christian live under the sun. The message of Ecclesiastes is not come to Christ and you will now live above the sun and everything will be well. But if you're a non-Christian, you live under the sun. No, Christian and non-Christian together, we live under the sun. Now, the reason I think that matters is because it stops us from a really wooden presentation of the gospel to people. Okay, w Would you ever want to say to somebody, l like we should say to people, but we never say this, do we? Is that you haven't heard this in your university lunch bar your life right now is pretty good, but if you come to Christ, you will probably suffer more between now and dying than you can ever imagine. Okay, come to our lunch bar event, come and be a Christian. Okay, but isn't it true? Have you read the story of Rosaria Butterfield? Some of you will have heard of her. Uh, she was a tenured professor of queer theory, uh, an English professor in America. Uh, living in a lesbian relationship, she had, she had absolutely everything. And over a long-term period through friendship with Christians, Rosaria Butterfield came to Christ and became a Christian. And her, her description of coming, uh, her description of her testimony is amazing because she says, I, I hated Christians. The very name Jesus stuck in my throat like a bone. And she said, and yet, somehow, amazingly, over time, I came to Christ, and she said, the moment that I came to Christ, my life was a train wreck. Imagine the Lord Jesus entering that kind of home, coming to that kind of person. You, you do not say to somebody like that, oh, you've got life under the sun and it's awful and it's terrible. Come to Christ above the sun, all will be well. Now, so, some people, after they come to Christ, suffer way more than they ever did before. And some people, as believers, cry more tears as a Christian than you can ever imagine. 
some of it because they're Christian, some of it just because they live in a fallen world. And if you try and take Ecclesiastes and say that there's this view of the world that is awful without Christ and with Christ it's wonderful, sooner or later you will probably not be Christian yourself much longer because you eventually realize the world is not like that. Here I am as a Christian and I'm depressed. I, I, I'm bereaved, I'm, I'm unemployed, I, I, life doesn't seem to work, and I'm a Christian. All through your life you've been told, ah, if you come to Christ you'll be above the sun, everything, everything will be okay. Come to Christ, you will, you will die under the sun. You will spend the rest of your life under the sun. Under the sun is a chronological marker, not, not a spatial marker. It's really important to realize that through the book of Ecclesiastes. Anytime you see the phrase under the sun, wherever it comes in Ecclesiastes, you will not escape that phrase. You will not escape what it is talking about by being a Christian. That, that describes you and it describes me and it describes us right until our dying day. Here's the last bit, a vital word. Okay, so we've gone from whole book to question to phrase. And here's the key word in Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. This is, this is the thing that if we don't get this right, we go off track here. So if you've been using the NIV, I'm using the ESV, the NIV was meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Everything is vanity in the, in the ESV. That word, it's a Hebrew word, hevel, okay? It does not mean existential meaningless, the way a kind of philosophy student, you've gone off to university, you come home, tell your mum and dad after term one, there's no meaning in the universe. You've discovered uh, everything's meaningless. Um, Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes itself cannot mean that. Can it look at chapter 4, verse 6? Um, chapter 4, verse 5, the fool holds his hands and eats his own flesh. Verse 6, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. Uh, chapter 2, verse 24, eat and drink. This also is from the hand of God. You, you cannot say everything is meaningless if one course of action is better than another. Uh, if, if, you can, if A is better than B, not, not everything can be meaningless. Here's the key thing with this word, okay? Commentators have, have pointed out that that Hebrew word, hevel, elsewhere in the Old Testament, the word means breath. It means a, a breeze. It means a mist. It means a vapor. And so it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor to the idea, to explain the idea that things are insubstantial and they are fleeting rather than to, to actions that are in vain or have no purpose. Okay, that's the key, the key thing. The, the, word, the word is a metaphor to explain things that are insubstantial and fleeting rather than to things that are, rather than to actions that are purposeless or meaninglessness, me, meaningless. Okay, it was Psalm 144. O Lord, what is man that you regard him or the son of man that you think of him? Is this the psalm that we sung? Yeah. Man is like a breath, hevel. Man is like a mist. His days are like a passing shadow. So Ecclesiastes is, is one person's meditation on what does it actually feel like that life comes and goes in the blink of an eye. What, is, what does that feel like? Okay. 
meaningless, meaningless, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So what would be a better translation? Fleeting, fleeting, says the preacher. Here today and gone tomorrow, everything is fleeting, says the preacher. Life is brief. And all of this happens in the light of the God who is eternal. Okay, you're going to come and go from this earth. And when you put the entire, the entire story of the world together, okay, this is to cheer you up. When you put the entire story of the world together, your story is going to be like the mist that the campers saw this morning outside on the grass that by lunchtime today is gone. Okay, that's you. Okay, that some of you look terrified. You're looking at me like that's the worst. It's the worst news I've ever heard, and I I want you to leave knowing it's part of the best news you can hear. Okay, because if you know what you really are, if you know who you really are, you will live more fully in accordance with who you are. Okay, people who people who. Th- People who are mists, vapors, but who think they are granite are in for a terrible shock when they discover they are a mist. Okay, people rage against the dying of the light, don't they? But mists who know they are mists and who've come to terms with the fact that they are mists while they are young will have much more fun as mists than people who haven't realized it. Okay? Ecclesiastes is a book for young people. It's how the book ends at the end, is that remember your creator in the days of your youth. Um, <clears throat> so I was, I was talking over breakfast to some of the guys, telling about my son, 15-year-old, um, really good footballer, has a chance to be professional footballer in, in Scotland with Aberdeen. He's in the youth academy, and in a year's time, they make a decision about who gets contracts and all the rest of it. And he's so fed up with me at the minute because the older I get, the more awful it is to be getting old. So he gets out of the car to go and, go and train. And as he gets out, nearly every time I say to him, Archie, just enjoy it. Just, you know, you've got an hour and a half. Go and love every minute. Train, run as hard as you can. And he's gone before I've even finished doing my, my little speech. Sometimes I'm so, I'm like this, going like that, and I look around, he's gone. He's finished, he's off. Okay. It's what young people do. This is what you do, your parents telling you, enjoy, you know, you, it's, the old, it's what old people do. Ah, I remember when I was young. And it's what Ecclesiastes is doing to you, saying you, you are a mist. Okay, life is going to accelerate now really quickly for you more and more and more and more. And the message is it's not a, that's not depressing. It's because you are that. Okay, what would be depressing is if Ecclesiastes said, because you are that, because you are a mist, join a monastery. Lock yourself away from the world. Okay, fast all day long. Go to church seven days. You're a mist. Make sure you're in church seven days a week. Okay. Ecclesiastes is the opposite of that. Because you're a mist, be a happy mist and, and, and gr- grab, grab this life with both hands while you can. Because one day you will not be able to. 
And do not be the kind of old person that looks back on being a young person saying, I wish. Okay? You have the choice now, the chance now, to not pack your future full of regret. You, you actually have the chance to do that. You have the chance to change your future, to shape your future. And I'm going to read you some beautiful words at some point through the weekend. A, a, an older man, James Russell Miller, who wrote to the young people of his day some of the most beautiful words about what it means to grow old well. Um, and we'll, we'll, we'll come to those. So four keys. I'm waffling. I'm going to speed up. Four Ps. Okay. If you want to read Ecclesiastes well, here are the four Ps. Go to the epilogue, please. Let me try and do this as quickly as I can. Four Ps to finish. My daughter always says, um, Dad, why do you always say when you're preaching, you say, and so to finish, and then you do another 20 minutes? Um, it's hope, isn't it? You've got to give people hope. Um, so to finish, uh, four Ps. Besides being wise, this is chapter 12, verse 9, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying, and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of, de words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. Ecclesiastes contains words of truth and beauty and puts both of those things together. If you read Ecclesiastes and you only find it depressing, there are depressing bits as you begin to get your head around it. If you only find it depressing, you haven't read it properly. Ecclesiastes is a delightful book. And Ecclesiastes is a truthful book. And think about both of those things, delight and truth. God is not a killjoy in the way that he's made the world. Okay? He's not puritanical. Um, he tells us things about himself in ways that are beautiful. So it's one thing to tell you that one day you will be old and to tell you about old age. But it's another thing to tell you about old age in the words of beautiful poetry. Do you know those words in chapter 12? Remember God, uh, verse 6, before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel is broken at the cistern. It, it's, it's delightful words of poetry to press the poignancy of old age into your heart. So Ecclesiastes 12 is saying that old age is like a once great house. Imagine Castlewell and Castle, not redecorated like this room has been since the last time I was here 30 years ago. Imagine coming back into it. The windows are broken. The, the, cloth, the, the curtains are on the floor. The heating doesn't work. It's decaying. That's what Ecclesiastes gives you in chapter 12 of old age. It pictures old age being like a house. Okay, you get this picture of sad degeneration and decline. Okay, and, and here's what Derek Kidner says. He said, by looking at a ruined house, okay, in the brave struggle to survive, there is an al almost a more pointed reminder of decay than in a total ruin. In the brave struggle to survive, the fact that the house is still standing, still trying to have people in it, still trying to be open for business, but it's just not a pleasant place to be anymore. In that image, there is a more pointed reminder of decay than showing you something that's totally ruined. Okay, Ecclesiastes uses beautiful poetry. And, and if you look at chapter 12, verse 2, um, chapter 12, verse 2, remember your creator. And look at this, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after rain. Do you remember how the book opens? The words David read for us in 
uh, the opening verses of chapter 1, the sun, the wind, the rain, everything is circular going round and round again. Now the book ends with creation imagery, but here at the end it is all these things disappearing. It is the, it's as if God is turning off the lights on a person, turning off the lights, the sun and the moon and the stars are darkening. At the, at the end, to be old feels like you come undone. It feels like creation goes backwards. Things go into reverse as God begins to turn the lights off. So I hope I hope you find this as you read Ecclesiastes yourself. It, it's 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 a delight to discover that the Bible is like this, isn't it? That the truth of the words matches the form of the words. So it, it's one thing to be told in Ephesians five, isn't it? What marriage is, or Genesis two, that the union of a man and a woman. That's one thing. But it's altogether different to be, that, 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 that kind of writing is altogether different than being given a ballad like Song of Songs that tells you not just what it's like to be in love, but to make love. It's one thing to be told that soon we will die. And it's another thing altogether to learn that there is a way of understanding the poignancy of death that will make a difference now to how you live before you get there. Read Ecclesiastes for delight. Read Ecclesiastes, friends, for pain. Look at verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings that are given by one shepherd. Okay, Ecclesiastes is going to hurt. Uh, so my, even, even I, we, we don't say kiaf, like someone said the other night, but I grew up uh, on a farm in Dundonald, farming family. I remember, we didn't have uh, pointed sticks. We had those plastic sticks that you... Hit, hit the cows with you just push push an animal in a certain direction don't you and to get an animal to go in the right place you need pain a goad was a pointed stick if you go this way there's pain if you go that way there's pain and ecclesiastes says i put all these things together and these words are going to throb a little you're going to hurt reading ecclesiastes a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death better than the day of birth. You, you, I, I, want, I, want, I want you just to sit on a pin this weekend a couple of times, okay, when we come to think about, think about death. Another P is perspective. Look, look at how the book ends. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Okay? The one perspective you need on your life is to fear God. Okay, take a step back from your work, your problems, relationship problems, your work problems, who you're going to marry, where you're going to live, what you're going to do. Ecclesiastes says, fear God and keep his commands and all will be well. Okay, that's the perspective you need on life. Fear God, do what he says is right, and all will be well. And actually, the, the keeping his commands is subservient, isn't it, to the first bit. Augustine said, love God and do what you please. Love God and do what you want. In other words, the, 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 the discipline of what you do will come from the loving God. If you love God and get that right, you will love your neighbor as yourself. It's why I think it's astonishing, really, for someone like Tremper Longman to say this is not a Christian book, the whole bit of, of the middle of it. Fear God and keep his commands is exactly like the Lord Jesus, isn't it? Love 
the Lord your God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Chapter 4 in Ecclesiastes, that's the message of chapter 4. When you love God, you will love your neighbor well, and you will be happy and whole and healthy. That's the perspective. Fear God, keep his commands, and preparation. Ecclesiastes is all about preparation, isn't it? Chapter 12, verse 14, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. I, I don't know how you feel about judgment. I don't know what, what you think about it. Um, in the Bible, judgment can either be a predicament, can't it? It can either be a threat or a warning, or it can be a promise, or it, it, it can be a hope, it can be a joy. And I think Ecclesiastes harmonizes with, with a bigger perspective on, on eternity, on hell and heaven and judgment. I think Ecclesiastes harmonizes with the idea in the Bible that judgment is a reason for jubilation. Judgment is a reason for jubilation because judgment is the hope of a whole world restored. Okay, you get, you know, you get the Psalms, don't you? Psalm 98, Psalm 95, Psalm 96. Let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to do what? To judge the earth. It's an amazing thing. If you think judgment is a terrible thing or something to be feared, you, ha you haven't suffered. Your, your heart hasn't been broken. Uh, Ecclesiastes, those, those bleak passages that Tremper Longman trips over and looks at, the, the Ecclesiastes says some things in life have no answer. Okay, If you're a pastor and you think you can fix people or fix certain things, you're in for a really really big shock. People come and see you and sometimes the, the only thing you can give them is the, the tissues on your coffee table. That There just are no answers for some things in this life. So one of the hardest things about Ecclesiastes is, is learning to accept the argument of Ecclesiastes that sometimes silence is the only correct response to tragedy. Sometimes it's the only thing you can say is to keep quiet some terror in the world exceeds our capacity to bear it, doesn't it? Chapter 4, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive, but better than both is he who has not yet been. See, I, I think we are so poor at staring at brokenness we flick the channel, don't we? Comic, comic relief. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? Comic, comic relief. Let's have a little segment on Africa. Horrendous. Somebody's traveled out, changed their life. This is, a, this is so awful. I've seen this. Please give your money. And we go back to the studio for laughing. Because if we kept looking, if we went on to another bit, another part of the world, and another part of the world, another part, it would be unbearable for us. So we stopped looking. And when a believer, like the believer in Ecclesiastes chapter, when he stops flicking the channel and he stares at something so long and hard that he tells you how it makes him feel, we say to him, oh, you mustn't really be a believer. You mustn't be a Christian. No, Ecclesiastes is simply expressing the, the shattering awfulness of life outside Eden. Because it is shatteringly awful. 
And that's why you have this amazing ending. That's why there is this astonishingly hopeful eternal perspective. God will bring every deed into judgment. One day there will be a perfect, I can't remember the wording, I think it came up in that version of Psalm 144 that we sang. There was a beautiful description about the tapestry. One day God will lay out the tapestry of what he has done in the universe from beginning to end. Ecclesiastes 3 says, when you look at it, we will all say it is beautiful. And we can't see how God is doing that. I want to say to you that without the P of preparing for judgment, you will not live well. And I don't mean, I don't mean preparing in the sense of making sure I'm a Christian so that I'm saved and get to go to heaven but preparing for judgment by realizing that I can suffer well because God has the answer. God will wipe away every tear, not me. God is the one who knows what he is doing. God will make sure there is justice and judgment for all, for you, for me, and for all the world. Let me finish. Let me pray. Fifth fifth P, prayer. I'll have coffee. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for this wonderful book that it is different from what we uh, are used to in so many ways. It's different from what we expect. And we want to ask forgiveness, Heavenly Father, for the fact that it is different from what we expect you to be like. Uh, Forgive us for ever thinking that we have you taped, understood. Uh, Forgive us for shrinking the scale of your love for us and for not realizing how lavish you are in your goodness to us, your people. Make us treasure your great goodness, we pray, and love you more. So we thank you in the name of your Son. Amen. (laughs) 